Welcome to Talk Time with Max Contact, the podcast where we talk about the latest contact center and customer experience, industry news, and insights. Join us as we welcome industry experts, discuss actionable strategies you can apply to your business, and help professionals like you on your path to long-term career progression and success. I'm your host, Sean McIver. Hello and welcome to another episode of Talk Time with me, your host, Sean McIver. In this episode, we have not one but two amazing guests. I'm joined by Sarah Hunt and Julie Mordu, and both are from Greenbean, a trusted recruitment partner and the recruitment partner to the Call Centre Management Association and the Forum. Associate Director of Client Solutions, Sarah Hunt has over 25 years of experience in the contact centre industry. Julie Wardu is Head of Marketing and Partnerships with over 11 years of experience in recruitment marketing and content center networking. Today's conversation centers all around showcasing contact center talent. Welcome, Sarah and Julie. I always like to do a very short introduction to everybody, but it always feels a little bit weird if I'm introducing people when they're sat right with me having a conversation. So, Sarah, I'll start with yourself. Did I miss anything there in the introduction? No, no, you didn't. Thank you, Sean. Thanks for having us. We're really excited about this. And um, yeah, we always come as a bit of a duo, me and Julie. But yeah, no, it sounds a long time when you when you put it into 25 years. But yeah, started my career on the phones, which is an unfamiliar story. You've probably talked to lots of people who've had the same introduction. Did it after I left university just to get some money to go traveling and ended up staying for 25 years and having a really, really good career in the contact centers industry. And so I'm a huge advocate for people entering that role and coming along and enjoying it and having a great career in contact centers. I agree. I started from exactly the same place. I started off on the front lines on the phone. So I know exactly what you're talking about. We're going to come on to that in a little while as well. And of course, Julie, not to miss yourself out. Yes, well, I know I don't look old enough, but I was one of the very first call centres, but they weren't even known as call centres at the time. Right back in the very early 90s is where I started my career. And it's led me on such a squiggly career path that has involved recruitment, working in contact centres, networking, judging for awards. It's opened the doors for such an amazing career that I've had. Let's start there then, because this is one of the things I wanted to touch on today, is that with the breadth of experience that, you know, I've got over 10 years in the contact center myself, so with the breadth of experience that we all have between us, but when you look back at where the industry started and where we are now, we've kind of had this macro change over that period of time, but we've also had a much more recent, very kind of micro change that's happened in this post-COVID universe, post-pandemic universe with the likes of hybrid working. Would you agree with that? What kind of transitions do you feel that we've seen? I'll come to you first on that one, Julie. So, I mean, going back to when I started, it's a completely different industry to the one I recognised. But essentially, the ethos and what we're trying to achieve was still delivering an excellent customer service to customers. The technology and the advancements that the sector has done has been phenomenal. But I think since COVID and what you mentioned, the start of hybrid working has accelerated the industry at a pace that we couldn't have imagined before the pandemic happened. and 
I think what also has fell out of it is candidates' expectations and talent's expectations of what a job role should be. And that it's really challenging times now for businesses to try and catch up with what a candidate's expectations are because people are used to having time at home with their family and with their dogs. And traditionally, the contact centre was very rigid, had to be in the office. And now we've got the beauty of hybrid working, but I don't think we've quite got the balance quite right yet, but it's definitely heading in the right direction. I agree with Julie. I think it's changed so much over the last two or three years with COVID. I mean, there were advances just generally, but it's changed so massively. And I'm not quite sure that everybody understands where we need to be or where we are. And um, it's still at the heart of it is the people. And if you create a great environment for your people, it works for your customers as well. And if we keep those two things in mind, I think it'll just keep going in the right direction. I completely agree. And I think it is interesting that if we think back to a pre-COVID universe, if you'd said to anybody in the industry that you can run a successful contact center with having very few staff in an actual office building, I think you probably would have been laughed out of the room by 90% of companies because the belief just wasn't there. And it wasn't until companies had to do that, that actually the realization happened that, okay, you actually can do that. And I think that that's been very much transformational. I'm going to come back to you on something you mentioned, Julie. You talked about you felt that the hybrid model, and I believe there are a whole range of hybrid models to kind of choose from, it, there's still some learning to be done there. Can you just unpack that a bit for me, please? I think we've gone a full circle of getting our people home. Now we want them back. And now there's the element of presenteeism creeping back in. There's also purposeful presence to be considered. A lot of people have now got a lot more in their day. They're used to not having the daily commute. They don't want that wasted time. They want to get home and go to the gym or walk their dog. So it's the candidates are almost driving what businesses are having to do now. And I don't think everybody's quite got it right yet because we're still in a bit of a, a trial situation of this. We haven't been in this situation before, but what we seem to be losing in the contact centre environment is that with the hybrid working is the sense of working together as a team, the, the collaboration days, the idea sharing of being together as a team and what a contact centre is all about was very good at being a team. And I think some organisations have lost that along the way. Some are doing it really, really well. But I think policies are just adapting as we go along. It's not this policy is going to last for the next two to three years. I think all businesses are starting to adjust it every few months. They're doing pulse points with their people, checking in with their people, seeing if it's working. We're also seeing huge problems with mental health, the rise of awareness around neurodiversity. There's so many different things to consider and it is a learning curve for businesses it's a challenge i think the heart of it is businesses and organizations being flexible i think we're moving away from that term about hybrid and it's about flexible working and there is a move to wanting people back into the offices but it's how can you do that and still maintain some level of flexibility for people that's lives have changed a little bit and I think people are a bit worried about coming back in case they lose that flexibility so the more that organizations invest in those policies around flexibility and supporting colleagues so that if they want to go to a school play or pick the kids up from school or walk the dog as Julie said or go to the gym the organizations are trying to work around that 
we've seen some great examples with some of the customers that we're talking to around purposeful presence. It's a mouthful, that, isn't it? But about when you do come back to the office and you're in the office doing those great stuff around people and engagement and working as a team and collaboration, all of that really good stuff as well. So I think if organisations can nail that, that flexibility piece, and then make it purposeful when they're in in organisations, that's perfect. Great thing to come out of it has been the elevation and of the importance of resource planning in this as well, because all of these changes that are shifting, they've probably undergone the most change during these last few years, but will continue to do so as we decide what is right for each organisation. So it has propelled them into the limelight, I guess, and I don't think it's finished. Especially with, I mentioned earlier about the rise of neurodiversity, what we're seeing is a lot of organisations are having to adapt even further now because having people at home during COVID, their normal coping strategies have completely changed and coming back into the office and into the workplace, people are struggling with noise, they're struggling with people around. It's not just the fear, the anxiety around COVID's gone, but actually their coping strategies have changed yet again. So we've got various different things at play. I think that's a really good point, being familiar with some of those elements. In my own friend group, I know things like masking can be a real challenge for people who are having to integrate back into the office environment. And on the flip side of that, there's been that absence of the support structure that you get within an office environment. I remember when I was on the phones, when I was sat talking to a really challenging customer, And my colleagues around me would hear the tone of the conversation. When I finished that conversation, they'd be like, you handled that really well. Are you okay? You'd have those micro check-ins, almost like nano water cooler moments that helped strengthen the team. And then we went obviously to the remote universe for the necessary. And then coming back to this again, it's actually remembering that there are huge values to be had from being in an environment like that. But again, as you say, it's around finding that balance that works for the majority as much as possible. I was going to say, it's like not one size fits all, isn't it? Back to that piece around flexibility. What is it that you need to do for that individual, both when they're in work and when they're at home, that suits all their needs, that allows you to get the best out of those people while they're in work, really? One of the things I think is key to recognise is that the contact centre industry has changed over the period of time that we've been our higher skilled professional selves. But I think it's also important to recognise that the perception of the average contact worker used to be that it was an unskilled between job. Sarah, you know, you mentioned at the outset that that was something that occurred for yourself. It was certainly me, you know, fresh out of university, just need a job. I'll do this for a few months and then here I am all these years later. Is there still an element of bias around that? Do we still have work to do there? From an operational point of view, Sarah, I'll come to you on that one first, if I may. You know what, Sean, I do. I think we still do. There is some of that perception around it. That's why we're so passionate about breaking down those images and views of the world, because we've had, and and lots of people that we work with and a lot of our colleagues have had amazing careers in contact centres. And what we want to do is showcase that career of choice almost 
Julie talked a little before about a squiggly career. How many careers can you have where you might start on the phones and you move into digital teams or complaints teams or resource planning even? If I just look at myself, I've done like inbound, outbound, project management, outsourcing, transformation, recruitment. Julie talked a little bit before about hers. I don't know many other industries that allow you to have that exposure to that level of careers, opportunity and skills. But yeah, I think sometimes the contact centre still has that old school view or people outside of it do actually. And that's why we want to do things like this. And we're constantly going out champion in the cause as well. Because some of the challenges that contact centres have today are the ones that they did have 10 and 20 years ago. We're still losing people. We still have 30, 40% attrition in some organisations. We still don't get the right candidates for the job. We still don't almost provide transparency and clear view of that contact centre path as well. And that does create challenges for us. Just on the back of that then, let's unpack that a little if we can. It's no surprise, hopefully, to anyone listening that recruitment and retention are two of the biggest challenges with any given company at the moment, certainly in this industry, but more broadly. Why are many businesses still struggling with this? What do you think the key thing or couple of things are that they're missing? And again, I'll come back to yourself, Sarah, on that one if I can. I think one of the things is getting the right person. So there's recently been some research that says 84% of attrition is the wrong person for that role. And if you think about that, that's incredible, isn't it? You're spending all that time and effort and money to try and pull someone into a role. And actually what you've not done is matched that role with that right person. So it's key to really go back to the beginning and truly be transparent about what it is that you do as an organisation, what it is the role is, and then sourcing the right people as well well looking for the right skills the like right attitudes all of that really with Greenbean being a recruitment company how do you overcome some of those transparency challenges and ensure that the right person gets to the right role how do you ensure that's at the core center of what you're doing well I guess where we differentiate to a traditional recruitment agency is that we are a recruitment process outsourcing provider so we embody ourselves as the client as the client brand and whether it's temporary or permanent recruitment we operate as though we are the employer and we will be held to account on SLAs about retention about employer brand about numbers headcount but for us, the most important thing is about the transparency throughout the candidate journey. And that's pre-boarding as well as on-boarding. And once they're in the role, it's managing the candidate's expectations, giving them the reality of what the role is so that when they get into the role on day one, there's no job shock. If all of a sudden they're in a lovely, shiny classroom, they're having fantastic induction training, they get live on the floor and they think, God, I didn't think it was going to be like this. So I think a lot of it is around educating our clients and educating hiring managers on how to do that successfully, how to portray what it's like working in your business, what your talent value proposition is, but the realities of the role so that we're not continuously filling this leaky bucket of putting people in the top end of the bucket for them to drop out the bottom and let's see who sticks. I think sometimes recruitment, internal recruitment, is what we're so measured on getting the numbers in that out the bottom end is what we're doing damage for the industry. And we need to stop that. We need to plug that hole in the bottom of the bucket for the sake of the industry and for their employer brand and give candidates the same experience that we expect the candidates to give to their customers. 
And I think as well, we've just talked about it, haven't we, that the role has changed significantly over the last three or four years because of COVID and post-COVID. It'd be interesting to see how many organisations have updated their role profiles or just even being transparent about the role because it definitely changed. The frontline advisor role and the team manager role is now different because of COVID. So it'd be interesting to see have organisations updated all of that onboarding and pre-boarding and all of their talent services on the back of those massive changes. That's a really good point. And I think one of the other things that I'm going to come back to you on, Julie, that you mentioned was the point beyond which they're actually day one in the role, in the environment, in that role themselves. Because you talked about the pre-boarding and the onboarding, but I found it interesting that you talk about that. Oh, I don't know what the right phrase for it is, maybe post-boarding. Um, let's, let's go with post-boarding. It's an unusual concept to hear a company that specializes in recruitment or recruitment process outsourcing. It's unusual to hear anyone speak about that post-onboarding period. Can you just talk to me about what that looks like? We measure success on how many people are still in the role when it comes to either they come out of academy or they come out of probation or whatever the client we agree upon. So I guess this is probably a good point to mention a part of our grow program that I know we're going to come on to talk about, but a huge part of that is about the onboarding and it's to support internal training teams so that they can focus on the nuances of their business, about the technology, about what makes their business them, what products or services they offer. And the GROW programme will almost go hand in hand with candidates throughout their probationary period to make sure they know what's next in the industry, what part they play in the wider business and keep them excited about the opportunities. So part of our programme lasts all the way through past that early career stage, early attrition phase, however we want to brand it. So it goes a lot further than just the recruitment and onboarding. Seeing as you've mentioned it now, I was reading through the documentation around the GROW model, and I know some of our listeners may be familiar with the acronym GROW, but it's in a completely different lens. So can you just describe the GROW model in broad terms and, and how that contributes to solving some of these key issues that we're talking around in a bit more detail? The name GROW, we didn't try and choose GROW to compete with an acronym that was already out there. It actually went out to our delivery teams to say, this is what we're trying to do. Help us come up with a name. And it stands for Get Ready for Opportunities at Work. And it actually, that name was found from our delivery teams who are out there talking to candidates every day. And the sense of the programme is to get candidates ready for day one, to get them ready, like I've just mentioned as well, to get them through the early part of the career out of academy into up to probation period. But the biggest part of it is to set expectations of what the wider industry can offer them, what the career opportunities are, where they fit into that but also offers them professional accreditation so that we can finally say, once you finish this GROW programme and you finish your probationary period, you will get professional certificate from the forum, foundation level, which is the foot in the door to the next, can go on to continued learning. But we now compete against retail, hospitality and leisure because we can give you this professional accreditation. You can't get that in those other industries, yet we're all competing for that same talent pool. And this, for us, it shows the industry as professional career and hopefully will be a career of choice. Sarah, from an operational point of view, do you find that that really makes a difference in terms of the approach and delivery in that sense of having that accreditation at the end? Can you talk to me about the operational impact of that? 
It's one of the key features, actually, because nobody in the industry is doing any formal accreditation for people at contact centre customer service frontline level. So for us, it's about investing, organisations investing in their people and showing them this is the start of their ongoing training and development journey within the role of the contact centre. And from there, you can go and do lots of different things and you can start your training and development career as well. It's for us is something that allows continuous learning but also it's seen as an investment in the individual as well which sometimes you know as we've talked about before reputationally we've not always been seen to be doing in our industry. We see it as a key differentiator for clients so we all know a candidate may have multiple choices of of where to go for a role. They might have an offer from two different contact centres. They may have an offer in retail hospitality. It's all those transferable skills we're looking at. But if we can demonstrate throughout their pre-boarding that the business is going to invest in their learning and development, that makes that candidate sticky. They will be more inclined to stay with us throughout that pre-boarding phase. And they actually do start on day one, but they're excited about starting on day one. They can turn around to the family that are going, you don't want a job in a contact centre because they'll go, well, actually, I'm going to get a qualification out of it. I'm going to get professional accreditation. And that's something that can add on to the CV. But what also through starting the growth program how it actually starts is from the day of offer and they start to go into the vetting process we know that some contact centers it can take four weeks to get through a vetting process if your local government it can take up to six months we know that candidates can drop out of the funnel there so this is a program that is easily accessible it's mobile enabled 10 minutes bite-sized learning that they can listen to on the tram, the train, while they're driving. And they'll start that learning journey from the point of offer so that they've got an understanding of the contact centre industry before they land on day one. But they've also demonstrated to the business that they're prepared to develop in their own learning as well by doing this in their own pre-boarding phase. And then it moves on to once they get into role, They'll complete the next box set, which takes them through to the end of academy or the end of probation and gets their professional accreditation. Sarah, from an operational point of view, how does that dovetail with their existing internal training processes that companies may have? How does that grow program complement the internal training efforts? Or is there a risk, I suppose, of it becoming just another thing that needs to be done as part of that? Well, that's the idea it is to complement that whole end-to-end piece. And we will work alongside training teams and learning and development teams to make sure that it fits for the business. But it is about starting that pre-boarding and onboarding journey. And as Julie said before, it gives the organisations time to really work on the nuances of their business. So if you think about, say, it was an insurance company or something like that, they've got plenty of other stuff that they'll be doing in induction around what insurance means and how you do it and the regulatory stuff around it, potentially. This complements that because really it's the wider view of our contact centres. It talks about what it's like to be coached and developed, be given feedback, back some of the acronyms that we all use in a contact center because we all know there's a hundred million thousand of them isn't that it's like so it's kind of breaks down those it also talks a little bit about what support systems you will have as an individual so what resource planning do what quality assurance do what the training team do so it prepares that way rather than going into the nuances of the business so it does go hand in hand with the training team and the onboarding team within an organization I'm going to go completely off script here, 
I said earlier on at the opening that retention and recruitment are two of the biggest challenges within um, not just the contact center industry, but the broader business landscape as well. And I guess my question is this concept of this grow model, which I really like the sound of, of setting that transparency and the expectation and all the rest of it and everything that goes with that. And the fact that you've got employees who are enthused and looking forward to start to achieve that accreditation. How does that also tie into the retention element of that as well? Can you speak to that as we move further into the contact center life cycle, if you like, of an employee? Because it's um, an accredited program, it is just the very start of your learning journey. So you can go on and carry on and do something. We're in partnership with the Forum, which is an accredited industry body. From there, you can move on to loads of different paths and loads of different learning paths. And just the idea of the attrition, you lose most people at the start of that journey. Within your training period or without that onboarding, the majority of your people tend to fall through that funnel, as Julie called it, leaky bucket. And that's mainly because they don't understand the role. They didn't realise they were going to be measured on everything or have KPIs or have targets or anything like this. And this programme stops that from happening because it's totally transparent right at the beginning, gives you a view of what's going to happen to you. So therefore, for us, it reduces early attrition. We also think it will help, as well as reducing early attrition, it will help improve quality because their speed to competence will be a lot quicker because they've got that broader understanding of the contact centre industry. I mean, we all are familiar with the power of one. That is such a powerful module that we've got in the box set that sets them up for success. It tells them how important their part is and if they are not online at any particular time, what implications that can have. So that takes away all of those questions from their induction and just reinforces the message of how important a role they play and ultimately they will become competent quicker. I've got one final question for you both and it's a bit more on the experience side from you both. So I looked at your journeys, your squiggly lines, as you said earlier on. I looked at your squiggly lines through the career paths and I saw a lot of my own experiences in there as well. As part of that, you've both transitioned and worked in different sectors and across different verticals and in different roles. This question's for each of you. What did you find the most challenging transition to make and how did you kind of go about overcoming that? I'm not going to go to any one person first because I know that's a big question. So I'll leave that open to whoever wants to jump in first on that one. I'll go first then. So I think for me, it was... I had an opportunity to move out of operations into transformation roles. I was the SME for what was a huge transformation program in one of my roles in the financial services industry. And I always say, say yes to every opportunity. And that came along. It wouldn't ordinarily be my next career choice, but I said yes to the opportunity. And it was completely different than running an operational team. I was working on my own as part of a wider team, but really it was just me instead of having that huge, like 200 people around you that you can go to and be with. And it involved lots of different new skills for me, kind of strategy stuff, detail, planning, organising, all of that kind of stuff that sometimes you're running fast in operations. That was the biggest change in my career, I think, but absolutely loved it. Miss the people because it can be a bit lonely sometimes in transformational worlds. But yeah, it was just another tool to my belt as well. So yeah, that was probably the one for me. I say every challenge is an opportunity. So 
I've had so many different career routes since I started off in the early 90s that I wouldn't be where I am today if it wasn't for that. Every day is a school day for me. Part of my role that I absolutely love is all of the networking, running best practice events, getting involved in contact centre judging, because then I can bring that value back to the business and back to my role and back to my clients and also to the delivery team. So I just see every challenge as an opportunity and that doesn't mean to sound really fake. No, no, that's completely fair and valid. There's nothing wrong with that answer at all. It's a really interesting take on it. As you were saying your answer, I had that realisation of, oh, actually, I would probably struggle to answer that myself as well. So yeah, no, I'll hold my hands up that. I think that's a really, that's a really valid answer. Thank you very much. I think with that, we've reached my time limit, unfortunately, which means going to have to begin winding it down. So unfortunately, Sarah Hunt, Julie Mordu, both from Green Bean, thank you ever so much for joining me today. Hopefully we get an opportunity to talk again in the future. Absolutely. Thank you so thank much you. for having us, Sean. It's been great. Yeah, thank you, Sean. Take care. Pleasure has been all mine. Thank you very much. Talk Time is brought to you by Max Contact. To find out more about Max Contact and how our customer engagement software can help you and your teams provide smarter customer experiences, visit maxcontact.com and book your personalized demo today. Be sure to search Talk Time with Max Contact in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found, and leave us a positive rating to help other like-minded individuals join the conversation. Finally, before you go, never miss a future episode by clicking the subscribe button and turning on notifications. On behalf of the team here at Max Contact, thanks for listening. <laughs>